0: I used to live in New York City. Everything there was dark and dirty. Outside my window was a steeple with a clock and welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be be beginning a very short series, just a two-part series on Dick's short stories from 1974. Um, He only published two. um, And I would say these are his last two major short stories, the last two really significant ones. He wrote a lot of queer and quirky short stories in the late 70s and 80s but i think these two stories a little something for our temponauts and the pre-persons which we'll look at in the next episode are the the most significant of the stories that really remain in dick's career the rest are are kind of a mixed bag in my opinion some have interesting ideas in them but they're they're all just a little bit odder and don't seem to add as much uh, to our understanding of dick i guess they might help us understand maybe the Valis trilogy a little bit and there are some themes that that are reflected in the Valis trilogy novels but these two stories are are both really good and they're stories that I think really go back to themes Dick has been playing with since the 60s so in some ways it's we it's kind of an end of an era we talked about an end of an era earlier with you know the you know kind of the the mid-50s early or like that period from the mid-50s to the early 60s where Dick had tried to stop writing science fiction and then tried writing conventional and kind of put an end to science fiction writing for a while. And then he came back in the 60s and it kind of started a new period in his career. Um, these two stories are, are kind of traditional Philip K. Dick stories thematically. Um, they're not weird yet. And I think the stories of the late 70s and 80s do get a bit weird. And of course, we have the experiences that happened to Philip K. Dick and was in 1973. And that certainly shaped the last decade of his life significantly. Uh, Much of his writing of that period is actually reflections on the things that happened to him at that time. So it makes sense that he started exploring different questions uh, because of what happened to him personally. But it's with some sadness that I, I talk about these stories because it's it really I will finish up and look at all the short stories that are in the collected stories of Philip Dick before I end this podcast run. But it's for me, it's. You know, I think these, these two stories are really the, the last of, of an era. Um, but the one we're going to look at today is called A Little Something for Our tempunauts. Um Basically, it's temporal astronauts, and it's grouped together. That's that word, Tempunots. So these are basically explorers who, who explore time, right? So they're, they're time travelers. So it's kind of a—I've never heard this term used before in any other science fiction for a time traveler. Usually they just say— time traveler. I mean that's what Wells used in the the time machine I think it just called him the time traveler here this is a, an interesting idea like what would we call time travelers maybe there's a different you know this is a plausible name for them you know uh, as astronaut for space space explorers and in a way that that does tell us that this is a story not about time travel so much but a story about exploration and a story about that and we, we've talked a lot in this podcast about Dick's views of the frontier and how those views changed. And basically I see three periods of Dick's frontier, you know, his view of the frontier. What you have in the early, f- in mid-50s is a very optimistic view of the frontier where the frontier becomes the escape mechanism, becomes the way for humanity to get a fresh start. It's a very classic American Wild West frontier, right? It's, it's almost as Turner-esque Frederick Jackson Turner-esque narrative of, of history as the unfolding of, of the frontier. And that's maybe not that original to Dick, but I think it's very def- it's a defining feature of his early work. And I, I really stand by that. In the 60s, starting with really Martian time slip, you start to get a more ambivalent view of the frontier. He starts to ask questions about it, and it starts to become much more banal. The frontier becomes just an extension of of the world we have on Earth, and it doesn't become that, positive transformative force anymore it just becomes kind of an extension of banality certainly in the three stigmata palmer eldridge you have it and you have it in other stories as well now once in a while he'll still go but kind of harken back to the old views of the frontier and like the crack on space but that in many ways are those were stories written a little bit earlier and were published you know later in the 60s so there's you know the timeline here is a bit mixed up Compared to when things were published and when dick thought them up originally but certainly there's a lot of transition in the 60s and a lot of juggling back and forth different views but by and large dick comes to the conclusion that the the frontier doesn't really offer much new it, it's just an extension of the old and I think this is best seen maybe in Duando's Dream of Electric Sheep where the frontier is not even talked about outside of just being on the backgrounds earth is decayed and, and and falling the people left behind are essentially Kipple but the frontier is simply where regular bougie human society dwells. It's, it's nothing fresh and new. It's just where humans go to survive, where society can continue. But there's nothing kind of new and sharp about it. Now, what we start to get, I think, in the 70s and 80s, in particular, is, is something more akin to an eternal return. And I think the definitive work here is, is what we've already looked at, The Maze of Death, where we have history unfolding as an internal return you have it here in two a little something for our temper this idea of like history just kind of repeating itself and, and going in circles and then there's and again it, it's kind of like there's no escape the frontier there's no purpose to the frontier because you're just kind of spinning your wheels and that's really what the story is about And I, I think this is why dick talks about these time travelers as tempo notes, right? Because he's trying to talk about space exploration and in his liner notes for this. And I think with these liner notes, this was written in 1973. So this this story was actually first appeared in final stage, an edited volume. So these are actually Dick's notes from that time. So unlike a lot of these liner notes where they're kind of reflections 20 years later on his stories and they're a little bit suspect, this one I think is a fair... Fairly close to what he was thinking when he wrote it, and I I want—it's pretty long. It's like a whole page, but I'll I'll just read part of it so you can get a nice sense of what Dick was thinking about when he wrote this story. "Quote: In this story, I felt a vast weariness over the space program, which had thrilled us so at the start, especially the first lunar landing, and then had been forgotten and virtually shut down—a relic of history. I wondered if time travel became a program, would it suffer the same fate? Was there, or was there?" even a worse possibility latent in it within the very nature of these paradoxes of time travel, end quote. And that's that's actually from 1976. And he has other liner notes from 1973, which kind of talk about the same thing, the sadness he feels about space. Quote, I felt a futility about futility. There's nothing more defeating than a strong awareness of defeat. And as I wrote and realized that what for us remains merely a psychological problem, over-awareness of the likelihood of failing and a lethal feedback from this, would for a time traveler be in... Instantly converted into an existential physical whore chamber. We, when we're depressed, are fortunately imprisoned within our own heads. Once time travel becomes reality, however, this self-defeating psychological attitude could spell doom on a scale beyond calculation. Um, so, that's that's some of his thoughts about what he was trying to get at in in this story. So, um, l- let's I guess let's let's just jump into it. So a little something for our knots written in 19, 1973, essentially, and then published in 1974. Uh, originally published in an anthology called Final Stage. It's, it's the second story, I think, he published in a in a contemporary anthology, like a commissioned story for an anthology. The other one was The Faith of Our Fathers, which appeared in Dangerous Visions. Dangerous Visions, by the way, is still in print. I I don't know if it's ever been out of print. You you can pick it up pretty much at any bookstore that has a good science fiction section. I don't know about this. I've never came across this this particular collection, final stage, Uh, but if you have the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, this is in the fifth volume, as are all of the late Philip Dick stories. Okay, so um, what happens in this tale? Well, Addison Doug returns from a time travel voyage to a surprise girlfriend. She tells him how the news reported that all of the time travelers, the knots died on their voyage. Addison tells her that the two other Tempranauts, their names are Benz and Crane, will be coming to visit soon along with a Russian chrononaut to help them figure out what happens. I think it's really nice what he does here with of course, the Russians called their guys what cosmonauts, right? Using cosmos instead of Astros Astro. Um, and the same thing here. The 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 US uses Tempernaut and the Russians use Chrononaut. Basically uh you know meaning the same thing, but but just a distinct name for them. Now meanwhile, Benz and Crane are struggling to find Doug's home. Crane thinks it's strange that they are officially dead, but Benz reassures him pointing out that everyone has a death date. Their death date officially just happens to be in the past, right? because they're, they're time travelers, of course, so they can uh, they can live in a time past their own death and, and kind of look back at their, at their death as a kind of historical event. They're discussing the situation with Doug's girlfriend Mary Lou Hawkins. They figure that something happened in the reentry, the kind of temporal reentry now in private thoughts addison knows that they are in a closed time loop where they're repeating a series of events thousands maybe a million times they really don't know how often they've been repeating it but it's, it's kind of forever they're they're essentially in a time loop and they haven't yet figured out how to escape the time loop and it's not really clear they can right but they're in this they're in this time loop, loop i mean they'll basically exist forever their dilemma is really nearly biblical in consequence general toad is his name he talks to the temper knots and he's interested in cultivating their public image following their deaths and then their return, you know, because they had died earlier, uh, and now they're back. The Soviet chrononaut theorizes that such an implosion in entry could cause this infinite time loop that they seem to be experiencing. At a bar with Mary Lou, Addison Doug is getting drunk, and he's met by a man who seems to recognize him. Later, he's warned by some police that he should not even be out, and, uh, and that, you know, there's still this day of mourning about to be completed to mourn the death of these temper knots, but here they are right alive and well he reminds them that although they have died they'll make an appearance at their own memorial service being time travelers this will help build up public support for maintaining the time uh, space program so basically saying you shouldn't be getting drunk and messing up our plan to build up public support for the time space travel program now you know when dick talked about in his liner notes the Ambivalence he was growing up with the space program. I mean, by the, this is after the Apollo, right? And we've gone to the moon a few times. And, you know, it's, it lost some of the excitement, right? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I was born in 77. And I never felt that, that awe of the space program uh, that other people did. I remember seeing a few like shuttle launches. That's what I had growing up was the shuttles. And those were kind of banal, actually. There wasn't this great like mission right? Uh, like going to the moon that the earlier generation had. And I think Dick is a bit reflecting on this, like what's our actual purpose of, of, of going there? And then it became much more just about building support to keep funding for these programs without a clear, you know, ambition of why we're in space. And I think that's something that really plagued. If we look back on what plagued like the, the, the shuttle program was it really lacked that that mission, right? Besides servicing the space station or the Hubble Space Telescope or something like that. But anyways, uh, that's kind of, uh, I think, the core theme of the story is that the, what the government's interested in and in is like is public support for it, like to keep the funding up. And I don't think it's ever really established in the story what the space time program is even about, what they're trying to achieve, except the fact that they can do it. Right? Now, the day of mourning takes place and the return of the three temper knots is proclaimed before the crowd. To a reporter, Benz also explains that they're hoping that by stopping one week after their flight, they'll be able to figure out what caused the accident and re-entry and then maybe resolve it. Addison-Doug breaks in with the more brutal truth. Only death is the solution for these three time travelers, otherwise they're going to be stuck in this infinite loop. Later, a Soviet chrononaut confirmed Doug's hypothesis. But since the only evidence that they're in an internal time loop is Doug's feeling of fatigue, and that, that's how it manifests, it's, they don't even have memories of doing this a bunch of times it's just this feeling of fatigue like no one remembers doing this endlessly it's just they're all really bored and they shouldn't be bored right because it's kind of an amazing thing to witness your own funerals they cannot act on his plan then to sabotage re-entry which is the kind of the plan maybe to break the loop is to sabotage re entry and 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 cause their death but since they're not going to be aware of of it when they're when they reach the next re-entry they're not going to be able to achieve it, right? It's only after they get back on Earth that they figure this out that they're in this loop. So they're kind of stuck, basically doomed to live forever. Benz and Crane do not think there's an infinite loop, so that complicates it more. Um, but they, they seem to resign to the fact that they're gonna die anyways, you know, because of course they saw their own funeral. Now on the way back to their launch pad, Doug receives a note from Dr. Fine that that does seem to confirm that the crew is in an infinite time loop. But on a more positive note, they'll be getting a special posthumous award from the government. And the there's really no conclusion to the story. That's just where it ends, where they're going to get this posthumous re- award. It's not really clear if they ever get out of this loop or if they're planning to sabotage reentry and, and basically bring about their deaths and then therefore stop the loop will ever come to pass. So what to say about this story, I, I think it's fairly straightforward uh, and it, it kind of Dick explained it himself. He said a major theme of a little something for us tempernauts is boredom. Um, we also have the misuse of the of the astronaut, and I think that's implied in the title, a little something for us tempernauts. That uh, it's like, oh, you get this posthumous award. That's what I think the title is referring to. You know, for eternal suffering, they're going to get a little like they're going to get a government plaque or something, right, or a statue or, or some silly thing like that. But deeper to this is just a feeling of boredom, especially with the space program. And I already quoted that where he said, I feel vast weariness over the space program. It thrilled us at the start. Start. We had the lunar landings, but then it just became boring. You keep going back to the moon. Like, what's the point of that? Right. There's there's. we're not going to Mars. Right. And here we are 40 years later. And where are we? Right. Right. Uh, I guess politicians will still throw out Mars. And you got, of course, Elon Musk doing his things. But pretty much the space program is not really inspiring Americans to do great things the way they did maybe in the 60s when Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to beat the Soviets to the moon. Maybe it was really the Soviet. We need the Soviet Union in a way to push the space program in a way, you know, to do something great. Because, you know, for much of the 50s, of course, the Soviet Union was on the cutting edge of space exploration. They all the firsts were really the Soviets, right? It wasn't until the moon that the U.S. did something before the Soviets. So maybe we need that. I don't know. But, you know, we just, I don't get this feeling that, I think he's right here, I don't get the feeling that the space program is inspiring any greatness. There's not the kind of great collective enterprise like the Apollo program was. It exists. There's the extension of the military power. There's the demands of capital that, that want space for satellites, for... Maybe eventually for resource extraction, and that's really the fear, and I think that's something we need to worry about. You know, it, and I think that's some of the danger of an Elon Musk type character who wants to go to Mars, but it's not clear why he wants to go to Mars, except maybe as an extension of, you know, his company, right? Is he's not he's he's not like the Puritans trying to create a city on the hill. There's no philosophy behind it. It seems to me it's just let's do it because we technologically we can and maybe it's a step forward you know or maybe it's just about the resources out in space that will be easier to exploit if we have a presence in in space um so yeah space program exists but it's it's not anything that's a renewal in a renewal for us and maybe dick was feeling boredom at writing science fiction by this time right and i think in his other quote the one from 1973 where he says there's futility about futility Right, and that's sometimes how I feel about a lot of science fiction that comes out these days. Um, a few futi- kind of a a, a boredom, I, I would almost say, not necessarily futility, but a boredom about futility, a, a boredom about apoc, you know, post-apocalyptic dystopia. I, I'm just sick of it. I, I'm done with it, really. I don't want it. I don't need to see another story about how the government collapses, and then we all start killing each other. Right, I don't even really like the road for that reason I just don't believe humanity is that fallen that we can't at least work together you know even if it's if we're gonna go into the into the night we would do it somewhat hand in hand I, I don't believe this species is, the way they're portrayed in something like the walking dead right just at each other's throats constantly the only thing that matters is survival i don't think that's where we're at as a species and maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just being overly optimistic but i'm sick of dystopian science fiction reinforcing this idea that we are horrible people and so i kind of get where dick's coming from there and I want utopia yeah so I'm not done with science fiction in the sense that I like utopia I kind of like the solar punk stuff that's beginning to come out I I need that I like Star Trek I I, I want that more utopian vision again and I think that that needs to be part of science fiction because it it creates that vision of a future with some something we can strive for right even if it's in kind of economic terms or even if it's something as you know a goal for a new rebirth on on a planet like Mars you know I, I think there is a need for that kind of literature what we don't need is another story about you know a war that makes us all horrible to each other and then uh, or an ecological devastation right we need stories about how we save the planet not how we destroy it right the warnings are there those warnings i guess had a purpose but if you just keep telling that same story again and again it just it becomes we become immune to we become kind of um desensitized to them That's a bit of a side but but those are my feelings on on this now we certainly have this thread of the end of history hovering over our heads we maybe feel like the protagonist in the story uh the temper not addison doug you know doug along with the other time travelers are caught in such a return cycling between their departure and their death a few days later they've lost count of how many times they've repeated the same event now, history, I guess, has been a little bit more interesting in recent years, but not in a good way. We have the rise of the right, and that's really the political narrative of the last half decade. Um, and that's that shows maybe we're not at the end of history, but we're, it's it's in a very bad way, right? It's not a progressive vision of history. That, for all what do you want to say about Marxism and the socialists and the communist hypothesis? At least it projects. Kind of a, a progressive future right where things can get better and we can overcome poverty and inequality and, and these things the right i don't see really offering anything optimistic about the future it, it's a, you know they've it's just a very bleak view of humanity of our communities of the world and all these things so i don't quite know what get where, where that gets us but anyways um are we still at the end of history maybe not it's harder to maybe say that but you know I I, you know the, the it's still true I think that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism now in Dick's notes he wonders what the proper response to such an eternal return is should we despair like the characters and attempt suicide escaping the eternal return means their death of course and that's, that's almost by definition in there. So they don't have as many choices as perhaps we do. Even if we're in the end of history and in eternal return, it doesn't mean we're stuck there for all eternity. There are perhaps our ways out. So despair is not the answer. Striving on in the face of perpetual boredom and banal repetitiveness does not seem to be a better choice either, like ennui, I guess. While the story doesn't give it that time travelers any options of changing the playing field so as not to be caught in the eternal return, to actually save their lives and move forward, we are not so easily trapped by the end of history and the so-called end of history is not our only fate and we can do something else perhaps and I don't know if that means space exploration I don't know if it means you know socialism or something but you know there are ways out I, I, really, I really believe that And that's that's why I think we need optimistic science fiction. And in a way, this is a pessimistic story, but it it's almost a demand for a more optimistic, energetic science fiction. And I will see Dick here mourning the frontier that he used to write about in the early, in mid '50s, the the frontier that really did all you know that exploration really didn't matter. You think back to Solar Lottery and how you have those people on the on the ship going out trying to find the tenth planet, right? you know, which will be the place that this way that humanity can break free of the the cycles they're in, or even in the world Jones made where, you know, settling on Venus or even venturing out to other planets is a way of, of breaking free. And Dick doesn't seem to believe that anymore, but he can't have forgotten that he wrote those stories earlier on. And we can't forget that because we've been reading Dick from, from the beginning to the end. So um, that does it that's my thoughts uh, on a little something for us temper knots. It's a good story although it's it's a bit bleak. Um, So next we'll be looking at the controversial short story the pre persons which will allow us to think back on what Dick has written over his career on the relationship between elders and youth and institutions Mm -hmm. and young people and, of course, this is controversial because it's an anti-abortion tale that was written around the time of the Roe versus Wade decision, which legalized uh, abortion within limits across the United States. Um, and Dick coming out against abortion got him into some hot water with some feminists, and he writes about those in his comments on that story. So um, that's a, it's a pretty good story, though. So I'm looking forward to talking about that with you in the next episode. So uh, I'll see you then. In the meantime, if you have any of your own comments about this story, or about space exploration or Elon Musk or Mars or what can be the great project that can break us free from the traps we're in, please share that with me. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So thanks for listening, as always, and I will see you next time when I talk about the pre-persons. To feel these changes in me